Welcome to season two of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's cracking beer lovers? What's up? How's everybody doing? So we're kind of recording a little bit backwards today. This is episode number one for us. Um, well, I don't think that they know we usually record this as episode number four. I guess they probably don't. No. Hmm. You end up revealing so much more thing because we have a routine. You, just, I think you just automatically think they know our routine. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think most people knew that. I guess not. Um, well, this is episode number one of our recording for today. You're getting you're getting the best, um, most vibrant part of our recording minds tonight. Yep, and it is six o'clock. So early in the day, we're <laughs> early in the day. Well, heck, we're used to recording this one at like eleven, eleven thirty. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, we're fresh. We're ready to go, and we have cool beer. We do have cool beer. There's actually stories behind these beers. Do you want to tell the story? Uh, sure. So Clayton, uh, last year, sometime late last, the Q4 of 2021, comes to me and goes, hey, man, I'm going to a wedding in Austin. You want to be my plus one? I was like, yeah, man, I'm here for a little wedding crashing. Let's go. And so... We kind of had planned that we were going to have this kind of weekend in Austin, of which we were going to go to Crowded Barrel, and we were going to visit some breweries, and we were going to kind of make a whole weekend out of going to this wedding. And so one of the places that we ended up was Family Business Beer Company in Dripping Springs, Texas. Um, Had a great time. Some really great pizza out of a food truck Mm -hmm. on site. Um, Dripping Springs... That kind of Austin area is beautiful country. Um, so lots of beautiful uh, scenery on the way in. And uh, the location of the brewery is also fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's outside or largely outside. Got lots of outdoor space. Um, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. In the it's middle of beautiful. nowhere. Very kid friendly, family oriented. Great, just great spot. And. We had a great experience with all the beers that we had. Mm. Uh, and so we ended up buying a couple of beers to bring home um, to have on the podcast. And we bought merch because, yeah. you know. Why not? Beer merch. Yeah. Always a good thing. It's always cool to have around and also you support the brewery. Oh, yeah, so. for sure. And so we brought these home and we were going to try them on Pints of Perspectives and then, like the next week, we already had beers that we were we had bought to record for with. And then, like the next week, our mom and dad bought that twelve beers of Christmas from Clown Shoes, and so we didn't get around to them. So they just been chilling in our fridge for, you know, a however long, long. Yeah, yeah, a couple months, a few months. You only bought that one tall boy, right? That sixteen ounce. Yep, that's it. Um, this is it. I I bought a six pack of twelve ounces. Um. So. I ha- this is the only one I have left. So I have drank five of these. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I okay. Know, I know this beer pretty well at this point. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Um What is it? It is it's a German style pills. Okay. Um it's it's not it's not super special. 
in, in any kind of like, excuse me, any kind of like, this is new and exciting and different kind of deal. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, it's a pretty standard kind of pills, but it's a good pills. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but, um, the, the owner of the brewery, um, or one of the owners of the brewery, um, as a, as a well-known actor and becoming a sort of well-known musician. Um, and, um, yeah, he started it with his brother-in-law. Um, and it's kind of, it's kind of why it's called family business. Also the guy that, um, owns one of the, 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 the guy that I'm talking about, he was on supernatural, the TV show. Oh, which is one of their things is the family business, you know, because family. Yeah. Uh, hunting monster or, uh, I forget what it is, but it's like saving people, hunting things, family business. That's, oh. that's the name. That's what their like family motto is sort of. Got it. Got it. So family business is kind of like a spin off of that, I guess. Got it. Cool. Um, so yeah. Kind of a cool, kind of a cool little story from the brewery, um, or about the brewery, but um, I'm kind of interested to see what yours. Didn't you have this one at the brewery? Wasn't I think it, it was. I think it was in my flight. It was, um, and he only got IPAs in his flight. Yeah. So if you know anything about me, if I show up to a new brewery, I'm gonna judge them first and foremost. Not exclusively, but first and foremost, you're getting judged on your your IPA game. Um, I feel like that's really unfair. If you're a modern brewery in America and you don't have a good IPA game, unless you're marketing yourself as a niche that doesn't do IPAs, you're behind the eight ball. I mean, IPAs are the most popular brew in America. So if you don't have one, I mean, you're you're just behind the eight ball. You're starting out behind the game. So I judge you off IPAs. So I do think my entire flight was IPAs. It was. Um, so this was one, this is their, they call it their juicy IPA. And this is what it says about it online. A dreamy blend of Idaho seven and Sultana hops are featured in this juicy IPA with reality fraying notes of white grapes, pineapple and marmalade skies. It's 6% ABV, 5.9% ABV. Um, and from what I remember about this beer, that description, pretty flippin' accurate. Mm. Pretty flippin' ap- accurate. Ooh, I didn't realize they had a Saison. Do you like Saisons? I have to be in the mood. Oh, no, I love Saisons. Yep. So, what they say about the... The so Golden Age. The Golden Age is what mine is. Um, is It's skillfully minimalist in both recipe and character. Our rendition of the Timeless Pilsner is about as satisfying as it gets. Crisp and lively on the tongue, uh, featuring a mild, earthy hop bouquet and superbly clean finish. It is 4.5 ABV. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm kind of excited um, to have the last one of these. Um, Oh, apparently this one... um, the Great American Beer Festival, a silver medal in the Great American Beer Festival of 2019. 
Oh, so it's an award-winning beer. I didn't know that. Yes, it is an award-winning beer. I didn't know that either. Um, let's see, does yours say this too? Yes. So mine says things. I don't know what things it says though. So they all say together over beer. We brew quality beer made for quality time. Beer has a way of bringing people together, and we believe it's best when shared. Whether it's the family you were born into or the one you choose, gather around the table, scooch down. There's a seat for everyone. Nice. I like it. You ready? Cheers. Cheers. Yep. That's what I remember. Mm. Yep. Exactly like I remember... Um, really, really well balanced mm. IPA, not too hop forward, not too bitter, but then again, not too malt forward, not too yeah. sweet. Um, very well balanced. Um, it has a very even kill kind of mellow mouth feel, right? Um, it carries, carries flavor all the way through the entire drink. Um, and complexity of flavor while not having one kind of flavor note overpower the others too much. Uh, really well balanced. Yeah. Really well balanced. Seven, seven, seven. Solid, solid IPA for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> um, mine is a, a clean, crisp kind of IP or kind of uh, Pilsner with like that. Um, it, like it, it talks about like an earthy kind of hoppy backbone to it. Yep. Um, that, exactly. Um, but what I love about it is it finishes on the Pilsner malt type mm, thing. Mm. You know, that quality. Yep. Not, whenever I say Pilsner, a lot of people immediately think like... Miller Lite. Miller High Life yeah. or something like... No. Pilsner <laughs> is a malt of which is used in, in those, those less things. quality of beer. Yeah. But you can have really quality Pilsner beers. Right. And this is a really quality Pilsner. Yeah. I, I think I'm sitting seven, eight, seven, nine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, for what it is. For what it is. Yeah. If you if you want a more readily accessible, really good Pilsner beer, I haven't had the Golden Age or I don't remember having it, so I don't know how to compare it. But a pretty good quality craft Pilsner that's readily available. Two of them I would recommend. One would be the St. Arnold Summer Pills. Mm, yeah. And two would be the Back Pew Blue Testament. Mm, I haven't had that one. That one is very good. Um, but the bad thing about the family business beer company is... It's not accessible. You have to be in Austin. You have to be in Austin. Um, you either have to go to the brewery or to one of the HEBs in and around Austin. Yep. Um, so it kind of sucks that we can't get it here in Houston, but we're about to be spending at least one weekend a month in in Austin, or at least one day a month in Austin. Yeah, more um, than likely. More than likely. So we might be doing some more of their stuff. But the, other, the truth of the matter is, though, we have the same we have the same thing happening in Houston. I mean, Houston has a fantastic, oh, fantastic. craft brew scene. Oh, absolutely. Of which we most of them don't ever have to get out of the regional greater Houston area, um, which I'm not a thousand percent sure of this, but my suspicion, and I think I remember hearing this, uh, Eighth Wonder fits in that category. Eighth Wonder, I don't think, distributes outside of like the greater Houston area. I did not know that. 
It doesn't surprise me. Nor does that. Ridgeback and Katie. Mm. Interesting. Huh. Okay. We need to do some some more of that, but let's talk some theology. Let's do it. So you go ahead. I'm going to grab my book. We are talking about the Trinity today. And this is actually quite fortuitous timing because if you don't follow me on Instagram, um, well, first of all, our Wellhouse one is mywellhouse.church on Instagram. But mine is real simple. It's Pastor Cullen. Super easy to remember. Um, Lucky. um, I do a lot of stuff with deconstruction and the deconstructing community. And I was having a conversation with someone who's also a creator in the deconstruction space the other day about the concept of Nicaea Mm. and the count, the, the council of Nicaea and the Nicene creed. Interesting. Um, and they, they voiced some things that I myself have thought and worked through, but I've never thought about, because this person, while they're a creator and a content creator in the deconstruction space, I don't think they're theologically educated. Mm. Um, and so it never occurred to me that this would be something that, that a non-theology mind would go look up. Mm. And so I never thought about talking about it in a deconstruction context, even though I've deconstructed it and the things around it. Um, so it's quite fortuitous because this has been heavy on my mind um, to think about and talk about. So the, the Trinity really is it alongside the relation of Jesus to the Trinity are the main conversation points of the Council of Nicaea. And the way the Council of Nicaea comes about is actually a now a now since forgotten man by the name of Arius, yeah. who was a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, and Arius did not like the elevation of Jesus to the same status as God. Yep. That's really what his qualm was. It, it, yeah. And so a guy named Athanasius becomes the kind of main conversation partner to Arius and the main combatant. Um, well, I it, guess you would say Athanasius. Well, was, it depends on which side of the story you're reading. But but Athanasius had the traditional view of the time. Arius came in with this new idea that, like, oh, yeah, no, Jesus shouldn't be elevated to the same place as God. Well, I don't know that it's fair to say that. Okay. We're so early. I don't know that there is such a thing as a traditional view. I mean, we're... Everybody's trying to figure out what it is. I mean, fair, but we're also, like, over 300 years in at this point. Uh, Well, that's to be debated. We're um, about 300 years in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Arius is in the early 300s. Mm-hmm. Um, the Council of Nicaea takes place at 325. Yeah. Um, I mean, just think though, that's still so young. I mean, think about it in relation to us. I mean, America's not even 300 years old. Right. So, 
compared to the rest of the known world. I mean, understood. 300 years really isn't a long time to develop a new religion, especially one of which everyone is reinterpreting all the time. All the time. I mean, you've got the Desert Fathers off doing their thing. You've got the Latin West doing their thing. You've got the Greek East doing their thing. And even within that, right, in the Greek East, you've got the difference between Antioch, which is a much more like rooted in like they're probably the starting base for like conservative fundamentalists now. Yeah. But then you've got like Alexandrian theology, which is very metaphorical and allegorical and spiritual and very yeah. like open and kind of mystic. Fair enough. So like fair enough. Really fair enough. the world is wide open. Right. Um what makes Arius so known is because he's the first one that really comes up and says something that's like almost unanimously disagreed with. Right. Uh, fair enough. Um, so in that way, maybe it's traditional in that it was the first one that pretty much the masses were like, yeah, we're not going there. Yeah. Um, so that in a way might make it traditional, um, to, to some extent, but basically that's what happens in order to create the council of Nicaea is that Arius jumps on scene and he's like, Hey, you can't say that Jesus is equal with God. Right. And now here's the other thing I want to tell you. And Ben Blackwell, my professor, author of this book, used to joke all the time. And, you know, it, it was a joke, but the best jokes are rooted with an element of truth. I think the more I get removed from those days, the more I find those elements of truth to be more kind of pronounced Mm -hmm. more forward. Um, But he used to say all the time, you know, everybody's just reading the Bible. Right. Which is true for this situation too. Yeah. So Arius and Athanasius slash Alexander, Alexander is the bishop before Athanasius who kind of starts the conversation and then he dies and Athanasius comes in. Um, But in the middle of this conversation, Constantine, which was an emperor at the time, and uh, an emperor at the time who also really, if you were going to point to a single figure who made the most impact on where Christianity has arisen today, probably Constantine. Well, if he's not at least in the conversation yeah. for top five, you yeah. just, you do not know church history. Yeah. Um, Constantine is a huge figure for what he lays out as the trajectory of church history because he's a Roman emperor who ends up in some ways professing Christianity. Right. And rumor is he's baptized on his deathbed, which Christianity is no longer the peasant religion anymore at that point. Right. It's the one endorsed by the emperor. It now becomes the cultural religion, which completely changes the trajectory of what Christianity was and and ends up being, which I think has lended us to a lot of the problems that we have now with the Christian movement. But besides that, this is what's going on. And Constantine calls 200 200, um, theologians, church leaders, bishops to... Um, Nicaea to hold a council and the whole goal is to decide on Arius's position 
That's literally the entire goal. Mm. Um, and here's what I will say. I think Nicaea lands at a place that is pretty open. Um, we'll get to it next week when we talk about modern modern interpretations of the Trinity. Um, but Jürgen Moltmann and the way that he does the Trinity, which I have a book on it. Um, Clayton, you, you can't get to it probably, but the kingdom and the Trinity or the Trinity and the kingdom. Sorry. Um, fantastic book. His idea of the Trinity, which if I remember correctly, he calls the social Trinity. Um, yes, he does. He calls the social Trinity. That would be a fringe movement. Okay. It's not explicitly denied at Nicaea, but it would be a fringe movement. Um, which is strange for me to say because his idea of the Trinity would be the one that I would most align myself with now. Mm. Um, but so I think the Nicene Creed is quite open to the most interpretations of the Trinity. The one thing that it specifically denies is that God and Jesus are somehow other than one another. Mm. Um, that for whatever God is, Jesus, Jesus is. also must be too. Right. Um, now I will say. Now let, let's let's pause for a second though for the the people who may not be able to piece this together. Arius was arguing from the point where um, in the, in the Gospels where Jesus was subservient to God. And seemed to be like, um, in some way, some sort of less than than God is. So, whereas everybody else was, um, that talking about like Jesus' divinity, right? Um, but this is my point that everybody's just reading the Bible, right? But but that that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to set it up, understanding both sides of the argument here. Yeah. So Arius would be pointing to places like John five, right? Where Jesus says, I do nothing that my father does, does not, not will. Right. And he would go, well, that means you can't be equal because mm -hmm. you're somehow subservient. Right. Um, he would also point to places like, you know, well, I think there, no, really that's, there are tons of places in John's gospel that you could point to. Uh, a decent argument would be made for, uh, something like Philippians 2, that even if he was at one point the same with God, that when he takes on human form, he's now given that up. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, that's the other thing that's important to note here. And this is what I say, what I was saying about Ben's comment, and maybe I didn't do a good job of explaining it, but, like, everybody here is just reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and we all do this. Yeah. We all read the Bible, and we prioritize certain verses over others. Right. Um, I have this conversation regularly mm -hmm. with people at Wellhouse or other pastor friends or, you know, who else? And I, I'm very aware of my own biases towards certain verses over others. Um, we all do this. And so Arius was still arguing from the Bible— and this is, this is the thing I will say. I think Nicaea 
is probably the best place that it ends up. So the bishops are actually split kind of in half. And there's this group of bishops that presents Arius's argument. And they present it as well as uh, Bill and uh, as Ben and Randy say, uh, with boldness, proclaiming it with boldness, doing their best to, even if they didn't necessarily fully agree with it, mm. doing their best to embody the truth of Arius's argument because there is some truth to it. There are biblical references that make you seem like Jesus could be less than correct. Um, and yet, by the end of Nicaea. Uh, only two bishops did not sign the Nicene Creed. Right. Um, so that makes me go, okay, there, there's quite a bit of goodness mm. and unity that ends up happening here. I will also say, however, though, they, do, we, do we know from history who those two were? Mm, I'm sure it's somewhere. I don't know off the top of my head who they are. Okay. I'm sure it's recorded somewhere if we have the documentation. Right. I don't know if I don't know if that's been lost or not. I, I was just wondering if somewhere in your theological knowledge if you knew that. No, but truth is there are so many bishops of the church back then yeah. that we just didn't even know existed. Right. Um we probably don't even know we probably don't even know all 200 names of who were there. Right. Uh all we know is that there were 200 there. Mm-hmm. But who they are actually we may not even know um i don't remember learning that nor ever reading that anywhere um i do have the anti-nicene fathers over there which um may give some info so i could look but it's not really important i'm um, just curious here's the thing i will say if you do much reading about the nicene creed and the way it does Trinitarian development, which we'll get to in a second, the hero of Nicaea is Athanasius. But if I can be real honest, Athanasius is kind of a douchebag. Yeah. I mean, Ben and Randy make that point. As a person, <laughs> it, we it shouldn't be lost on us that he used power and violence to get his point of to course. accomplish his goals Which, as bishop. Let, let's also though state for a second that wasn't uncommon at the time. Don't care. The message of Jesus is clear that that's not the way to do it. Agreed. 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 But also, we have Martin Luther and Calvin drowning people, thinking that they're getting them to heaven. That and way. I talk shit about that all the time. I <laughs> like. I dog on that all the time. I think that that's one of the values that we have as contemporary, educated historians and academics and deconstructing Christians Mm -hmm. is to get rid of the 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 kind of Mark Mark Driscoll systems of the world and calling out both the good and the bad of our history. Agreed. I, I just, I don't want Athanasius to be singled out in this conversation because a lot of people were doing this at the same, not that it makes you right. There, but most people are, are doing this at the time. Yeah. However, and this would be my point is that for someone who is such a good reader of texts, he missed a massive point in about Jesus. Power and, yes. Yeah. And that, that should not be lost on us. 
that while he ended up being one of the most yet also forgotten um, important figures in in our tradition in our history and Christian and, history in period. Christian history he also had massive flaws yeah agree um which shouldn't be missed and also if i'm being honest they do make you question um some of the situation because as i read athanasius which ben and randy do a great job of summarizing the entire thing and they even have a section in here called monk or punk mm. where they talk about athanasius um but i've got entire books dedicated to athanasius and the work of athanasius and the life of athanasius uh athanasius book on the incarnation is one of the best books of of the patristic period in my opinion but in in all of that we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the, the gaps that he has in his theology in the way that he has led the places that it's ended up which makes you question and wonder about the manipulation tactics that happen in order yeah. to get the creed, because as I read Athanasius, I don't think Athanasius wanted near as much um, leeway in the creed mm -hmm. as has been allowed. Right. I think Athanasius wanted a much more fundamentalist and doctrinative kind of approach to the creed. I mean, I haven't studied it as which much. I'm, which I'm not here for. Right. I, I haven't studied that as much, um, so I, I don't really know, and so I don't really feel comfortable... Right. Speaking into that, however, most theologians back then were doing anything and everything they could to get their point of view out there. That's true. Um, That's true. Even if it was unethical and sketchy. Even to the point of pseudographic writing. Right. It, it's, it's just, there's so little that we know about that period, it... There's so many different things that could have gone wrong um, and sketchy things that people could have done. I mean, we we know enough mm -hmm. to know that sketchy things were going on. We know enough to know not just that sketchy things were going on, but that there were a lot of sketchy things right. going on. Um, and it's not far-fetched to say that there was manipulation happening by Athanasius yeah. as evidenced by his rampant abuse and violence toward people. Right. Um, so like, I don't, I don't have any qualms. I, I, I don't either. Um, I just, I, I just want to make sure that we don't also throw the baby out with the bathwater. Correct. And I'm right. not doing that. No, no, no. Yeah. I know. I know. Because if, if we did that with Athanasius, we also have to throw out the creed. <laughs> we well, no, cause you still have 199 other people who affirm or 197 who other people. Also probably were doing sketchy things. Correct. And that's and, what, yes. And then you also have to throw out everything that Calvin did, everything that Luther did. Right. Which most of I'm okay with. Right. Um, actually, honestly, I'm actually okay with throwing out most of Luther and most of Calvin. Interesting. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually 100% okay with that. Moving on. Between Ben's new book that he's working on on justification and 
John Barclay's book, Paul and the Gift, mm-hmm. I actually do not think anything of Martin Luther's ideas of justification are actually beneficial and advantageous. Mm. I am okay throwing out Martin Luther and his contributions to the church. Because the Reformation would have happened without Martin. He becomes the catalyst right. because of his 95 Theses, but that happens outside of Germany too, right? Mm-hmm. Calvin's not in Germany. Like the Reformation would have happened anyways, right. uh, of which we wouldn't, maybe we wouldn't have drowned people, um, <laughs> literally just murdered them yeah. for poor theology, of which some might say Martin and John themselves have. Right. Um, so it, it, it going back from this side and trying to interpret Christian history is actually a difficult task. It's not easy, especially when you're approaching it from a deconstructive space, um, because you want to stay true to the goodness of the things that were good, but you also you just come to a place where you can't you can't continue to look at the things and just continue to make excuses for the way people have acted. Agreed. Um, and also don't hear what I'm saying as making excuses. Oh, no, 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 not you. But I do think there are a ton of people in our contemporary world that do that. Uh, uh, Yes. And that is horrible and should not be done. Um, so that's my rant about them. Let's continue on with Ben and Randy's book. They then move into a conversation about the Trinity in the Bible of which I'm largely going to skip over. Um, just because I don't think it's, I, I think there are enough resources out there on the internet that if you're curious about this, you can find it. The Shema would be a place that would point to the singularity element of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Isaiah, the call of Isaiah and Isaiah six would point to the plurality of God who will go for us yeah. as the celestial being says, um, in Genesis 1, when God makes humanity, he says, let us make humanity in our image, uh, pointing to a plurality of God and divinity. The word God itself in Hebrew is the word Elohim, which is in its in its construction, Elohim is a plural word. It would, mm-hmm. in its most literal way of translating it, it would be translated as gods. Yeah. Um, Beyond, though, um, just like this sort of textual thing, we we get um, this this idea of the economic trinity, though, which is more about like God's involvement in the world, um, as well, which is an important thing for us to remember. Um, it is, and you kind of went past that into the Old Testament, and so I was like, maybe we should bring it back and talk about that. Well, I we're going to talk about the economic trinity a ton when we do contemporary relevance of the okay. trinity. Fair enough. Uh, because people really like the economic trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is the ontological trinity, which I right. don't think they talk about in this section of they the book. Um, no, they don't. Yeah, but the ontological trinity is the other one that goes in kind of is the other conversation partner to the economic trinity. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about both of those in the cultural, like in the contemporary relevance Fair section. Enough. My bad. Um, so it is there. I personally do believe that even though the scriptures seem to be aware of other sorts of beings and celestial 
characters and other elements of divinity that are present in the world. I do not believe that the Bible speaks to a henotheism. I believe 1,000% that the Bible speaks to monotheism, but is recognized but recognizes other divine characters and beings present in the world. However, it does not call them gods. Right. Um, so I don't believe there's a God of fire, a God of earth, a God of wind, a God of water, a God of the sea. I don't, a God, the sun God, the Bible doesn't speak to those kinds of things as much as some people in modern, uh, theology want to call the Bible henotheistic, it's just not. Um, it's just not. You have to get through some really mystical hermeneutic, uh, I think, to get there, which I just I don't see being advantageous at all. So uh, that's a word about the Trinity in the Bible. And then um, let's talk about, for our last few minutes, we've got about nine minutes left, let's talk about Trinitarian terms and what the Trinity decided. So there's words, Greek words, homoousia, hypostasis, all of these things that end up setting this idea of which the traditional doctrine would be stated that the Trinity is, and as it kind of lays out, the explanation of the Trinity is God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who each equally share one divine nature. Um, I think it's helpful, but as we always say, metaphors eventually break down. Right. Um, that metaphor has its limitations. Um, for instance... And let me, before I say this, let me preface. This is a metaphorical statement, not an ontological one. But how in the hell do you have a father and a son without a mother? Right. Um, the metaphor breaks down. Right. Now, whether that is an issue with patriarchy and misogyny of the authors mm -hmm. not wanting to give femininity to God. Right. Um, or if that literally is the inspiration and God chose not to have feminine characteristics because of John 1 mm. and the preexistence of the Son, that he's beget, mm. um, he's begotten, uh, not birthed, uh, never has a beginning. Um, you, you know, you could make that argument as well. Um, I don't know. What I do know is that the metaphor breaks down at some level. And so anytime we talk about the Trinity, um, the metaphor will eventually break down. For instance, some of the most common metaphors for the Trinity are, I am Cullen. Cullen where? I am a father, I am a son, and I'm a brother. Well, that's actually not a great representation of the Trinity at all because no, that's, that's modalism. modalism. Yeah. Um, the other one is the one about the egg. Oh, yeah. Uh, the eggshell, the egg white, and the egg yolk. Well, that's actually not it at all. Um, those, none of those are of the same substance. Mm. So therefore, that's just polytheism. <laughs> like actually, none of these metaphors actually work at any level. Yeah. Um, 
uh, th- the three leaf clover. It's just tritheism. Yeah, I mean, like literally, all of them break down at some level. Yep. Uh, the the gas one, the the three phases of the water. Oh, modalism. That's modalism. Yeah. It, like literally, none of these are great Helpful. examples. Yeah. And and I'll also say, as much as I love the shack. The, the book, the mm. fiction book, The Shack. That's tritheism. Uh, well, no, it has modalistic tendencies because you do occasionally see them together. Right. But you see the scars of Jesus on Papa. Oh, fair enough. Modalism. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, fair enough. They're You're not right. three right. distinct persons if Papa shares scars with Jesus. You're right. It's modalism. Problematic. All these metaphors are eventually going to break down. There's just no way around well, it. Well, and again, once again, line trying to understand a cube. We cannot understand the Trinity. Correct. Um, at, at this moment in time, I don't think that we will be able to understand what really is happening there. In a univocal right. way. If we're going back to our conversation of metaphor and analogy, we cannot univocally right. communicate and understand the Trinity. Right. Um, I do believe that with some element of equivocal mm-hmm. communication, we can get close. Right. Um, and analogical, we can get close. Now... So this is what they say. Trinity is not tritheism. They are not three distinct gods. That is true. Mm-hmm. This, like, I would point you to Deuteronomy, the Shema. Mm-hmm. There is one God, mm-hmm. monotheism. Right. Um, that's that, it. That is Done. a basis. Story over. Yeah. You can't, you, you can't have this conversation more. This is the other thing I would say. Anytime you begin to get into a conversation of the Trinity, um, and specifically I'm talking to the deconstructing community right now, if you want to have a, if you want to be true and faithful to the Bible, you cannot prioritize old over new Mm. or new over old. You must take the entire story encompassing of what it says about God and divinity, of which tritheism, not there. Yeah. It's not the message of the Bible. Modalism. So let's talk a little bit, bit about modalism. So this is what Ben and Randy say in their opening paragraph. Similarly, the church rejected this the approach called modalism um, or Sibelianism by Sibelius. Sibelius, an early third century theologian, proposed that God is not three distinct persons as Father, Son, and Spirit, were merely modes or roles that the one real God as one person took on during the drama of salvation. Okay? For modalism, think of a single ancient actor playing three different parts in three successive acts of a play. All right. So, basically, it's this idea that you have one being that can manifest himself in three modes or displays of godness. One being father-creator. The other being son savior. Uh, and then one being supreme deity. Right. Who can manifest right. himself as, as father, son, and spirit. spirit. Right. But that that's what I'm trying to say. Father creator, one category, because father is creator. Yes. And then son is savior. And well, then, not if you do John one. John one is also 
G- word, son, is creator. With God, creating the world. Fair enough. So what I thought you were saying is that you have one being, creator God. No, no, no. No, there is this one supreme being that is manifesting itself in these in three ways. three ways, yes. yes. Here's a problem with modalism. From a biblical perspective... There's multiple problems with modalism. Well, theologically, there could be. One of which is your source theology. Mm-hmm. Who's the source of Godness in this if these modes are happening in this way? Because Jesus, a mode of deity, mm-hmm. died. Right. The hell do you do with that? Right. Second, and here's the main problem with modalism... From a hermeneutical standpoint, what do you do with the baptism of Jesus when you see all three, all three of them together? Of them together yeah. um, can't you, yeah. you just can't really do anything with that. Yeah. The other thing that they say that the Trinity is not subordinationism. Subordinationism. Do you want to explain this? You've read the chapter. Do yeah. you want to try to explain this? It's not it's not super difficult to explain. It, I mean, it's So you have God as the supreme ultimate being, the Father, and then Jesus is less than one step down and then the Spirit is the other step down. That would be subordinationism. Um it it comes from the Arian practice or Arianism, right? Uh, yeah, it, or at least can be traced back to right. some of those roots, yeah. Um, it, it is not that, right? We talk about um, the Trinity as three equal beings, mm-hmm. or three equal persons in one being. Um, yeah, I mean, subordination is, is, is pretty straightforward, I would say. And this is this is one where I would, this is one where we would say, There is biblical places you could point to for subordinationism. Right. Um, you, you like I'm just, I'm not going to lie to you. There is biblical support for subordinationism. Yeah. Of which I will also say Traditional orthodoxy doesn't have great hermeneutic to explain them away. Not John really. 5 really cannot easily be explained away, of which Jesus really does seem to think about it in a subordinationist way. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a really long conversation to say that the Trinity really just is not cut and dry. No. It's not an easy thing. It's not a one-size-fits-all, and we shouldn't make it that way. And this is the truth of the economic trinity that we will get to next week, which is that God has chosen to exist, or God exists, in these three persons for the purpose of relationship with humanity. And so the economic trinity, the trinity that reveals itself and has activity in the world, 
has done so for fellowship and relationship with us, which, if I'm being honest, makes me much more open to very subjective ways of interpreting and relating to the Trinity than a single universal way. Um, Because my heart and goal here in us having a Trinitarian theology is that it gets you into deeper relationship with the divine. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.